welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Everybody, welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the podcast for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. If this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, I welcome you and I hope that you return for future episodes and new content. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I welcome you back and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and insightful. So before we get into today's episode, just want to remind folks to hit that red subscribe button if you're tuning in from YouTube. We always love to have more subscribers and people tuning in to see us in action. So make sure you do that. Also, if you are listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of those platforms, make sure you subscribe there as well. Uh, We also welcome any donations to help us keep this platform going, not just Radical Math Talk, but also our parent podcast, Identity Talk for Educators Live. Uh, The more we're able to gather those donations, the more we can build on this platform and continue to bring on experts and brilliance onto the platform. So you can do that by donating to cash app with the handle money sign id talk for ed or venmo at kwami sm so either of those handles should work out all right y'all those are the announcements now let's get into today's episode so we're going to take it international today's guest is someone who has a lot of experience in the international space, growing up as a transnational student, living in different international countries and having different experiences that have shaped her worldview, but also um, her view of math. And we're going to just have a conversation about what it's like to, to learn math in the international setting, what are the differences, what are some of the similarities, and what are some things that we can learn from those who are learning abroad or teaching abroad within the math context. So without further ado, I want to bring on uh, Nayang Weaver to speak with us about her experiences and to give give us her point of view of of what's happening right now in the international space. So we're going to bring Nayang on and get started. Hey. Hi, Kwame. How are you? I am doing fantastic. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for this space. Well, thank you for, for coming on. Um, I'm just looking forward to this conversation and really digging into a lot of these topics that I know we had talked about off air, but to now have it out in the open for other folks to experience, I'm just excited about that. So without further ado, let's let's start from the beginning. So we always like to start off with the mathography. So the mathography is just basically an autobiography of your math experiences. 
um, started from when you first fell in love with math or when you first experienced it, the ups and downs of your journey through schooling, all the way up to what you're doing now, teaching math. So just kind of walk us through your journey as a math student and now as a math teacher. Sure. So for transparency's sake, I want to let you know that I didn't take a single math or science class in college. I want to put that out there. Interesting. Um, so I'm an IB diploma graduate. So I got enough of the higher level math and science credits. And all I did was I just got the credits and didn't have to take any of those. And when I started college, I took an intro to anthropology course and just fell in love with that. So my degree is actually anthropology and legal studies. I originally wanted to, when I entered college, I wanted to become a chemical engineer. I wanted to get my requirements out of the way and then fell in love with anthropology. Then wanted to become like an international lawyer, uh, international human rights lawyer to be more specific. And then I that my career kind of took me towards like data administration and undergraduate admissions, which I absolutely loved, and then got into education. So yeah, it was kind of, I guess, meandering, if you will. Um, but I definitely got to see math from a different light. I didn't, I wasn't trained in it per se during college. My master's is also in anthropology. I do have a master's in education for teaching math in middle and secondary, but I don't have a math degree per se. All right. Well, that's an interesting path. We all take our different paths to where we are. So let me ask you this, because I know that you grew up most of your life abroad, going to school in different countries. So why don't you just share with the listeners and our viewers, you know, what that experience was like and and how it shaped you to to be the person you are today? Sure. Um, I think as a transnational person, like you said, it's hard to not think of your life as a series of experiences that you've had from different cultures, right? So I was born in Korea. When I was five, I moved to Singapore. I went to a British international school until I was 10. And then when I was 10, we moved to Thailand and I went to an American international school. I actually attended college in Massachusetts as an international student. So Learning math itself, you know, I remember like in grade five, when we moved from Singapore to Bangkok, I took like an entrance math exam and they had that typical question, like you have two quarters and three nickels, like how much do you have that kind of question? And I had no idea what a nickel was. And I had to ask the examiner, like, what does that mean? And he was kind enough to tell me what it was, but I started realizing that it wasn't math is, you know, they call it the universal language, but it really isn't that universal. There are cultural nuances that come into play. So as I grew up in international schools, learning math in different ways, and also attended Korean academies to learn math that way, in case I ended up in Korea for college, I learned math in different languages and with the different nuances in play. And I didn't fully realize how different that was until I started teaching math. Because like I said, I got my teaching degree in Massachusetts. And when I started learning how to teach the math, I started realizing I have to learn the American math language. Mm -hmm. And that was something I had never been exposed to until I was in my 20s. Wow. So full transparency. Um, I was born in Springfield, so I know you attended AIC. So I was born in Springfield, Mass. My teaching license is actually based here in Massachusetts. So I taught in Boston for many years. So I'm very familiar with Brandeis, which is just outside of the city. So there we got some connections here. We definitely got some connections. Uh, but I want to stay on the learning different math languages piece for a second, because I know in an international space, we have a lot of multilingual learners coming mm -hmm. from different host countries. So as a result, they may be exposed to math in different ways in terms of the language. So I want you to just share with us, how does one engage in translanguaging practices to account for the different walks of life children are coming from um, within the math context, of course? Sure, um, if it does help, since you mentioned Massachusetts, I actually started teaching in the Springfield Public Schools. Um, oh, nice. I taught, started at Central High and then went to SciTech afterwards. And that's, that was my first few years of teaching. And I 
learned the hard way that the language I was speaking to them was not the way to convey the math. Like I remember, and you're asking about the language and I feel like that there's a cultural part to it. That's what I'm talking about. Even if it's in the American context, like for me, that American math was foreign to me. So even as I was teaching the math, I remember like looking through the textbooks and like spending so much time rewriting the even the work to change all the names. And I don't know, like nowadays they call it the EI work. So does it mean I did that that back then? I don't know. But I knew that it I wasn't getting to them. So I don't know if you're even familiar with Mr. QUE. He was like a rapper, like a math rapper. Like I brought that stuff in and just getting the kids to connect, no matter what that meant. Um, I think that's really important. So I have been lucky enough where students have been really expressive to me about what works and what doesn't work. And that has been very helpful. So then having had that experience in Massachusetts where I taught at Springfield Public Schools and then at East Long Meadow High and then mm -hmm. went to Wilbraham and Munson Academy. So going from like a public to private space and then seeing that Mr. QE didn't really work in the private school. <laughs> so learning that the hard way and knowing that even when the same part of the state itself, like math speaks different languages. So all of that to say, like I came here and then I see that we're teaching the U.S. Common Core to majority Chinese students who know how to do the algebra. And I'm wondering why am I trying to teach them another language of trying to tell them to memorize Sokotoa or PEMDAS or BODMAS, whatever you call it, wherever you're from, wow. right? And that was challenging to me because I couldn't connect to that itself because I'm trying to teach them. And I was like, well, this is what we use in America. Does, I don't really connect with that because this is how I learned it in Korean. And this makes more sense to me because ratios, in ratios, the denominator comes first. And in fractions, in Chinese and in Korean, like the denominator, you say it first because it's kind of like the number mom over like the number child. Anyway, there's like a lot of language nuances there. So bringing that in, I think um, the Chinese students were able to connect with me. And then hopefully the non-Chinese students were also able to connect to different ways of phrasing the fractions to have a better understanding of how it works. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting. You mentioned that because just teaching in Massachusetts or just anywhere in the United States, I think what's difficult about doing what you're you were attempting to do back then is the fact that in the spring, all those students had to take the MCAS, right? Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar, MCAS is the state test that all K-12 Massachusetts students take. So in the MCAS, the way they phrase the questions is all in this American math language. So as yep. you're trying to engage in translanguage and practices, you're trying to scaffold the language in a way that's accessible for your multilingual learners, you still have this standardized test looming in the atmosphere. So how do you deal with that? How do you navigate that? That's a very good question. In retrospect, I probably didn't quite teach to the test. The way I think for me that worked well for me in the Springfield Public Schools was that I centered the students. You know, I taught yeah. in the high schools and you know, by that time I got them, they had enough stuff going on that math wasn't their favorite thing. Math mm -hmm. usually isn't. And I hear that a lot. Yeah. So it was about getting them to come to class and wanting to learn. And that was the most important thing. So that's why I did once in a while, like I had a lot of uh, Puerto Rican students and I would bring in my elementary Spanish once in a while and try to just get them engaged, try to let them feel like they belonged in that classroom. And that was my priority for me because even the data showed no matter how much you push the content, when it comes to MCAS day, the students were going to skip the day or be absent and not want to take it anyway. Mm -hmm. they, they didn't understand why that MCAS was important. And maybe it really wasn't. Like, what is the point of the MCAS, right? And again, this is my very narrow version of my one experience at Springfield Public Schools. But I do feel like the MCAS was very, to be frank, white. I think the language was very, in my opinion, culturally narrow and racist. Yeah. And I don't think that the students engaged with that. So why would I force that on them and say, this is what you have to know to take this test that you have to take. And they have no reason to do that. And they have no connection to that. So, I mean, I, I struggled a little with that. 
Like what, what is the necessity? And if I don't connect with the topic, I think, you know, as an educator yourself, like the, the content doesn't flow as well. And they know it. The students can feel it. They might not be able to name it, but they know it. So that's what I try to yeah. focus on. Yeah. And it's not just the content, but also the context, right? Yes. And so often the context of the questions that they're being asked during these tests are very Eurocentric. And as you mentioned, culturally narrow, I'm going to steal that phrase because I just like that phrase, culturally narrow. That's, that's what it is, where we're excluding cultures, we're not being inclusive. And it's still an issue to this day, sadly, in 2021, we're still dealing with this issue with not just the MCAS, but really all all test taking companies, whether you talk about, you know, Kaplan, whether you're talking about ETS, I mean, you name it. SATs, um, IB exams, AP yeah, all exams, those. all of, yeah. Yep. Even, even in the international space, IB examinations, they also fall in that line. So that's a perfect segue. I know we've been talking a lot about Springfield, but let's get into the international space. Yeah. So I know you are currently in Singapore, correct? Yes, Singapore. Right. Singapore. So I'm interested in knowing this. You're in an international school with all these different nationalities represented within your student body and also your faculty. So when you're planning a math lesson with your colleagues who are coming from different countries with their own different contexts of math, how are you all able to collaborate with one another and come to a consensus on how to best approach math from a pedagogical standpoint? Yeah, I'm still learning, to be honest. I think at least my experience from the departments is because so many of them are either not transnational at all. So American or British or maybe Australian. And then even if they are ethnically Asian, they've been brought up in one of those systems. So the pedagogy itself that they want to practice is very culturally narrow, if you will. Um, so it's a very, in my opinion, like cultural big beginner space, if you will. So I have to start with that transparency and vulnerability. And I have to do something like, you know, I had trouble understanding this part of this lesson because as an international student, when I grew up, like I have to go into that personal story because I have to explain to them how it could affect an international student. This year, actually, like just a month ago, there was an activity that we did. It's called Can You Zuli? I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's just pattern recognition no. in like zoo animals. And they code oh. like all the female animals, one thing, and male women. And like, I kind of brought it up to the department being like, you know, I feel like as a quote unquote DEIJ school, we shouldn't be having binary worksheets like this. I mean, I know biologically a female and female cannot have an offspring, but can we code this in a way so the students understand that that is not the norm? Like we keep emphasizing different things with worksheets or how we present things as the norm. And I think that's where the harm comes in. And I know that has more to do with LGBTQ+, but that's how it is with a lot of different avenues. Like, how do I tell them that, hey, my Indian students that learn math here, like they brought up that they can't really connect to the botmas. And I personally taught it wrong because I kept saying PEMDAS and they were like, Who's Sally? I was like, I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, so like, how do we make that connection for them? How do they make the connection? And again, it's it's hard because it's top down. And I've noticed that a lot of this curriculum, even if they say they're trying to diversify and try to include the local context, it's still done by people that don't really know what the local context means. It's done by people that have been trained in different countries. So we don't bring in the stakeholders. We don't bring in student voice. We don't bring in the local experts. So what kind of curriculum do we really teach? It just becomes like a hodgepodge of who happens to be in the room at the time. And so that, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm still learning and I'm trying to figure out where my power is and where the student's power is. And honestly, at this point, like my classroom is my safe haven and that's what I can offer to my students. And that's where I'm at right now. So, I mean, you're in Singapore and I mean, Singapore has a very strong math reputation around the 
world. <laughs> Even when you look at curriculum, different curriculum models for math. Like I've been in schools where they are trying to use Singapore math, the Singapore math curriculum, because of all the buzz that it's getting from other mm-hmm. schools and institutions. And just like you mentioned with the American math language example, Singapore math is one of those curricular models where if you don't really have that understanding of that foundation, of that context, it's going to be hard for you to utilize that curriculum in a way that's going to help your students because it's also cultural as well. So having said all that, you mentioned the fact that there are people within your school, and it's not just your school, but a lot of international schools, let's just put it out there, where a lot of people that are there don't really know the cultural context of the host countries they're residing in. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering, one, are, is there any Singaporean staff there, whether it's teachers, whether it's paraprofessionals, just any staff members? who are from the country, and two, if there are, how are they being utilized to help with that void? Just curious. Short answers. Short answers or not. I just had an experience last week where I have duty in the library. I was walking around, and I think I just noticed a few students like writing down birthdays, and I just jokingly said, hey, this is my birthday. Get that down too. I was just trying to get them to honestly stay more quiet. So I told them I was there kind of thing, and they're like, Okay, I'll write that down. Um, so you're the librarian here, right? I was like, no, I teach here. And they're like, oh, do you teach Chinese? I was like, no, I teach math. And they're like, wait, what? Wait, really? And I was like, yeah, I'm not joking. I teach math here. And that was so shocking to them that someone that honestly looked like them was teaching a math subject in the middle school here. It was surprising to them. And I always get taken aback by those situations because I feel like it's just a um, proof of a symptom, right? What are the students seeing and internalizing? So I think it's really important to have, yes, visibly more Singaporeans teaching here and having that continuous conversation. At the same time, there are also other layers of internalized oppression that you have to unpack with people that work in international school spaces. You know, I'm, I have so much work to do in that regard as well. Like I have multiple layers of oppression on me just because just having been a transnational person and on top of that, having that British and American curriculum and then going to America as an international student and then coming back here, just there's just so many layers that we have to work through. So even if having that conversations with that, those diverse people are happening, if the local people have not done the work and really identifying what their identity is. It ends up just being like a space where they just kind of go along with the dominant group. And that doesn't benefit the children in the long run, in my opinion. You really have to have everybody that is in the room that knows what they're talking about, that has really reflected on how the oppression has worked on them and how it's reflecting off of them. And that's the part I think that I don't I haven't seen that space yet. That's actually interesting. I wasn't expecting that response from the students when you mentioned that, okay, you you work at the school, you are an Asian woman teaching math. Mm-hmm. Now, here in the States and other places, we are always perpetuating this modern minority myth where if you were to say that here, it's like, oh, that makes sense. You're supposed to be here. You're supposed to be yes, teaching this. That's yep. kind of like the the response, right? So for them to respond that way, I wasn't expecting that to be honest. So this actually leads me to this next question. Just based on your experience, just as a TCK, trans, uh, third culture kid and someone that's been in different countries, do you feel like this myth manifests itself more internationally than it does here in America? just based on your experience. Yes. Yeah, just the the depth is different. So I'm still trying to really understand where the root of it is. My most recent realization has been in America, like think about if you think about the international educators, the Americans that are out here, they left America in like the 90s, yes. 2000s, and it's 2021, right? So right. arguably, possibly, maybe 
the model minority myth is not as prevalent as it used to be in America. Whereas that concept has still, it's still been here. It's still been in the international school space by the same people. Besides that, you think about capitalism and about how culturally so many countries are trying to aspire to be American and more capitalist to make more money. And there's so much, there's so many cultural things with that. And I know you're a fan of Dr. Tano's book, and that speaks too much, so much about that. Yes. So I just, I think the model minority myth is global. Do I think it has more effect in the international school sector? Yes, because it has been so internalized by members of the global majority or BIPOC or, you know, and it's being perpetuated by us still. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I just feel like no matter where you are, like dominant groups are going to treat members of the global majority the same, you know, and that's how I feel like there's proof that racism is global. Like we're treated the same way, no matter where we go. And I'm coming from a place of privilege, by the way, like within Singapore itself, there is a hierarchy among the Asian community. There is a clear like lighter skin Asians are upper rung and they're, they're, all of that still exists. So that whiteness, that whiteness that we all aspire to. Yeah. It's dangerous. And I think, yeah. yeah. And, and that's very much prevalent, especially when you look at how we view Asians in general, right? It's like every person who we come across as Asian we just automatically assume they're from East Asia, right? Yes. That's that's just kind of what happens. So mm -hmm. you're you're Chinese, you're either Korean, right? You're Japanese, because that's what keeps popping up. But we have South Asians too, who look mm -hmm. closer to my complexion, who get totally different treatment. Whether you're talking about Indians, Pakistani, I mean, you name it, it's definitely not the same all across the board, but the way the picture is painted mm -hmm. is described as such. Yeah, and that's the danger with language that yeah, we still sure. continue to use the colonizer's language. When we say Asian, like when was that created? When you say American or North mm -hmm. American, like, you know, it's just, we still keep using that language. I mean, you and I are speaking in English right now, our colonizer's language. I mean, Korea wasn't yeah. colonized, but like we are speaking English. So how much can we actually talk about? How much can we not express to each other because we don't have another common language that you and I feel on a daily basis that we have in common? But because English is our medium of communication, we're not conveying that. That's very true. That's so true. And I think that's something that I think about all the time. So, you know, I, I have a almost four-year-old son and that birthday coming up and you know, my wife and I, we, we talk about the importance of him getting a, at least one other language because we unfortunately don't have another language outside of English. And we're at the age where it's hard to acquire another language, you know, very hard to do that. And we, we recognize the value of it, especially being, you know, abroad, um, seeing other folks be multilingual speak at least two, three different languages. Like we see the value in that, but it shouldn't take that experience for people to have that type of linguistic, lack of a better term, just that linguistic experience. Like it shouldn't take going abroad for, for that to happen. But, but unfortunately that's what happens. Like you have to do that in order to, to have that experience. Yeah, I agree with that. And yeah, thank you so. for sharing that. I actually, like, I struggle with the fact that my two children don't speak Korean fluently. But the language that we try to, uh, that my partner and I try to encourage them to learn is Mandarin. And I, I think there's something there too. Like, there's like an internalized oppression for me going on there too. Like, what is the language? I keep thinking, what is the language that'll benefit them in their future? And I'm like, I, you know, Mandarin is probably more prevalent than Korean. Yeah, I need to work through that too. Yeah, and I think that's what my mom and my dad had to work through when they first uh, migrated to the States in the early 70s. And mind you, they came both came from Ghana, colonized by Great Britain. So they grew up learning English, the colonizer's language. They both speak it very fluently, but they also speak their native tongue as well. But when I was born and my siblings were born we weren't taught our native tongue 
from the time we were brought into the earth. They spoke English to us from the time we were born all the way up until now. And I always, and of course now, you know, in retrospect, I wonder, you know, why that was. And the only, the only explanation that I can think of to legitimize what they did is just that, well, they were immigrants and they probably felt that the best way for their children to survive was to acquire the English language because that's what would, that's what would give them access to education, access to employment, access to other opportunities that they may not have had when they first got to the States. So I really believe that was more about survival mm -hmm. than it was about, okay, we want you to learn the language so that you could be more connected to your culture. Yeah. Have you asked them? You know what? I never... I never have actually. I'm curious. I, that's definitely something that I'm going to that I'm gonna do. Um, because I'm actually supposed to be seeing uh, my mom and, and my sister in a few weeks. So I'll definitely ask them that question. Uh, absolutely. I'd love, to know what they, yeah, I'd love to know what they say. Yeah. Cause like my sister, she's actually more she is now fluent in the native tongue because she actually she lived in Ghana for a number of years as an adult. So being in that environment, you're able to immerse yourself with the people, immerse yourself in the language. So it was through immersion that she was able to get fluent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm hoping that I get that experience too one day. I'm I mean, they say you never really forget, even if you haven't formally learned it. Like if you had some exposure to it, they say you really don't forget. Like I know, like when people speak it, I understand what they're saying. So it's not like I don't understand. And I do yeah. know words in the language. It's just that I can't have a full conversation with people. Don't don't expect me to have a full conversation, speak the language. I can give you short, basic phrases, like first, second grade phrases. But in terms of giving you a whole soliloquy in the language, I can't do that. That's just mm -hmm. not going to happen, at least not right now. <laughs> All right. So I have a, one more question before we um, get into the next segment. So I want to know from you, what do you think student agency should look like in an international math classroom? For me, student agency looks like when a student is raising their hand to a class-wide question and really eager to show me what their understanding is. And so... We have, I have my classroom set up where there are boards all around the room um, and they can show me. And if you're more of the a type of student that don't want to go up to the board, we actually have desks that are whiteboards so they can just write it quietly on their own. And I, I always move around the room to see what they have to say. So it could be, you know, like I said, I mentioned Chinese students. It could be like a Russian student or a German student, like showing their understanding. If they feel comfortable enough to show all of us, how their understanding is happening, how their processing is happening. I think that's what student agency looks like. I think it's important to foster that environment where we make mistakes and that's great. So I do it all the time. I'm not gonna lie, sometimes unintentionally, but I'll make that mistake. And if nobody talks to me, if none of my students are telling me, I tell them, I'm like, I feel betrayed right now that you're not helping me process this properly. Like, can you make suggestions mm. of how I can work through this? So to me, that's what student agency looks like. Uh, that trust, that belonging that happens, and that that's one way to, that's one way I gauge my classroom to see if that happens. And what do you think stops people or students in this case from speaking up and giving you that feedback? What do you think is hindering them from doing that, just from your experience? I mean, it, it, may, it ranges, right? It could be from the student being shy to the students having a bad day to the student just is scared to speak up because they're afraid of my reaction and the environment that I fostered. Students, and that's where that power dynamic is. Like, I am their teacher. They call me Mrs. Weaver. They don't call me by my first name. The culture at schools a lot of the times is that you create that power dynamic so that students basically have to go along with what you're saying, right? 
But you can't create a, a, an environment where as soon as the student walks in, they stop being themselves. That's not where learning happens. And that breaks my heart if any student feels that way with me. I did have my mentee group, kind of like the homeroom advisory group, just tell me yesterday, they're like, as soon as we walk out of your classroom, we have to be someone else in the hallway. And I, I, was, I felt like it was a compliment, but I also, it also broke my heart. I was like, why, why is it just in my classroom? Why don't you feel like yourselves in the whole school? Like this school was, is meant for you. So what are we doing wrong? Right. What are the adults perpetuating? How are we oppressing them on a daily basis in between classes that this is happening? And, you know, that's like a whole other conversation because there are a lot of different ways that happens too. But yeah, just, so I think it's a mix of things and the students internalize a lot more. And I did that too, growing up, you know, having mostly white teachers telling me that my name was spelled wrong, telling me that, you know, the way I was doing math wasn't right, that I wasn't spelling things correctly. Like, is that really how you bring learning into the classroom? I don't know. Like, what do, what do we really want to teach them? Are we really teaching them the formulas or are we teaching them how to think logically and how to conceptually understand patterns? That part, definitely that part, which now brings us to the next segment. So, we have the show your work segment. So as a math teacher, those are our three favorite words. A student brings a paper in, or, you know, for you to grade. They want you to grade whatever work they've done. All you see is an answer. What do mm -hmm. we say to them? Where's your work? I need you to show your work. I need to see the evidence, right? So in this segment, showing your work really means showing your receipts. So you have a lot of receipts as someone that's very much involved in DIJ work, um, especially around your work with ALOC, which we're going to talk about um, a little bit, uh, because I think people who are in an international space need to know about ALOC and, and the work that, that you all do to address uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice issues um, in international school spaces. So talk to us about your work at ALOC, because I know um, you're a fellow there and you do a lot of behind the scenes work. And I want to make sure that people really know like what you do, because it's so important. Yes. I've said this several times, like ALOC has saved my life. The Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color. Um, I mean, it, it, it started out because I experienced so much racism in the international school system that I had nowhere else to go. That is literally where it started. I had so much faith in the systems that are in place and coming out to an international school system where you know, you're know you in a foreign country, the systems that were in place aren't as stable because it really depends on who the leaders are. And then experiencing the racism and not Giving, not being given the voice to talk about it or to have um, to help in accountability. And it was a very hard time. It was a very hard time for me um, previously in my school in China. Just, and as, a, as someone that looks East Asian, being in an international school where I see the connections and the realizations happening with the, the students, with the Korean community, and seeing them starting to open their eyes to the reality of how the racism just manifests itself in international school. And then the lead, the white leaders, all white leaders, just getting so fragile that they had to fight back using systems, made up systems to not let that community happen. That was, yeah, that's, I think the worst I've ever seen racism, like systemic racism that I personally experienced. Just gaslighting a whole community um, just and not giving the tools to the students to talk about things, not letting the survey data collection happen, dismissing all of the same nationality staff all at once, things like that, just that happening. And then there's nothing we can do, period. There's nothing. And you contact accrediting organizations, you contact recruitment agencies, all those international ones that you know, and they're like, we can't do anything. And that's, Simply, it's just not fair. Like, it's an unjust. How can you bring people to this school 
see this happening, see the evidence and say, sorry, maybe. I don't even think we really got an apology. So just trying to find a platform for that to even just talk about it. And that's where a came in. Kevin just totally took us under um, his wing, like Rama and GI and I, and he just let us know that there's this completely new world out there. There is a community that know exactly what we're talking about, that experience er everything that we're experiencing, that it's not new, that all that we're experiencing is unique it is for us, that is just textbook globalized racism, neocolonialism just happening. And that all yeah. we have to do is just create solidarity because they're going to keep doing what they're doing because there's no accountability for them. Illegal things that are happening in international schools, there is no accountability because they, they, they're they in this liminal space. They don't have to follow local laws. They don't really have to follow American, British laws. They're in this liminal space. So then do you involve Interpol? Like, what do you do when an international school is harboring child predators? Like, how do you... How do you go about that? There is no nothing in place for that. So it's just it's we're we're trying to just survive, right? All of us are just trying to survive in the space that's not made for us. And we need to really create solidarity and we really need to be around together because otherwise we're gonna be perpetuators of the cycles. And I think that's and pretty we're sad. perpetuators of the cycles by default. Yes. Because of just how we've been socialized into this yeah. world which is informed by the dominant culture, white dominant mm -hmm. culture. So we're perpetuating a lot of these things in ways that we don't even realize. Mm -hmm. And it's not until we get into our self-reflection that we realize, okay, how do I unlearn what I've learned? How do I change my mindset to force changes, not just within myself, but within these different spaces I'm in professionally? Yeah. You know, exactly. and that, that's a process. Yes. But there's no space for us that gives us that safety to do it besides ALOC. True. And that's why I find that community so amazing. All of us have our expertise, whether you're a teacher, a leader, wh whatever you do, you have your lived experiences. I call it, li I call it lived expertise. You have your expertise. You need to unlock it and get like really work on the internalized stuff so you can Get your true self out so that we can really work on that and really be who we need to be. And if we can't do that in our workspace, then we have to create a community where we can do that. And that's where ALOC is. The educational events, like the we call it like affinity space. But when you are there, like ALOC isn't just you're just sitting there and just venting about things, which, by the way, it is very helpful, by the way. But we actually have lessons being taught on reflecting on our ancestry. How are you not talking about that? How are you not bringing that into your daily life? And I think just opening all of our eyes to what is really happening, that is the strongest revolutionary thing we can do right now. Just opening every single pair of eyes that are not members of the dominant group. And as ALOC is happening, and I notice things, like I notice that the professional learning programs are not being offered to local staff that involves ALOC mm. because the True. leaders don't want that to happen. And I, I see that like just structural oppression happening. So we just got to keep doing our thing. We just got to keep talking to people and creating the relationships and building the one-on-one -on -one relationships with people around us. Wait, 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 wait a second. I know with ALOC, there are member schools that are in the network Mm -hmm. You mean to tell me that the local staff within those member schools don't get access to these ALOC learning experiences? You're, that's what you're saying right now. It is another gatekeeping opportunity. Wow. It's insane. Wow, yo. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And where is their power? Oh, the work? Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? <laughs> the risks they have to that's take crazy. to want to wanna learn. Yeah, it, it's... I just, I don't understand it because I don't agree with it. But again, this is coming from my scope. ALOC saved my life. It changed my life. It opened my eyes to this whole community of generational work. We have and a lot to do. <laughs> there's a lot to do. There's still a lot to do. And as you're 
talking about it, I can tell like how much it really impacted you. Like I, I can also, I can sense that it gets you a little emotional sometimes, right? Because of just how traumatic some of those experiences were for you. Yeah. Before joining a lock and you know as somebody who recently joined a lock i've already seen a lot of what you've described like the benefits the professional learning experiences and just the community i've already experienced it and it's it's powerful it's it's wonderful um shout out to kevin simpson who is the founder he is the he's the man he's the one who really makes this engine run so shout out to Mm -hmm. him Shout out to, to Rama, Njai, and, and just everybody in this on staff uh, mm-hmm. who are who are just doing the work because this is very much important and we gotta keep on pushing. All right. So we're f- about 50 minutes in. So we wanna start to wrap up and go into our lightning round. So the lightning round is what it is. It's light. Uh, we want to just ask you a few quick questions so that people can get to know a little bit about you outside of the classroom, outside of the school, and just the work that you do, just to end it on a positive note, because we've been talking about some very heavy subjects, which are important, but we also center joy here on this podcast, so that's what mm-hmm. we like to do with the lightning round, center joy. Okay. So, first question is, what was the most difficult math concept you had to learn? Um, numbers in English. <laughs> there you go. All right. Just, you know, 11, 12, 13. Like, why isn't it 10, 1, 10, 2, 10, 3? I don't know. The teens, just, yeah. All right. That's, that's a great answer. Um, how about your favorite math concept to teach or maybe one that you learned about growing up? Favorite math concept. I enjoy the concept of infinity. Yeah, the convergence and divergence from that, like, yeah, that that line between I feel like the symbolism and the real life, real life math, like that that concept really is exciting to me. Whenever I teach it, I'm just like, I get like really hyped up to my students and they're like, okay, Mrs. Weaver, like you can relax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see that infinity symbol in the background. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. infinite wisdom. Infinite wisdom. <laughs> Nice. Very mathy. <laughs> All right. Um, a country that you would love to live in that you've never been before. North Korea. One, I'm not allowed to be there. And two, it's where my paternal grandfather is from. I'm not sure okay. if I want to live there for a long period of time, but I would really like to. He, he never got to see his family again. And yeah, and he passed recently. So yeah, just to see where he grew up would be wonderful. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, my condolences to you and Thank you. your family. And is there a book that you're currently reading? Um, I just started. I don't have time to read, so I listen to books. I just started braiding sweetgrass. Okay. Yeah, and it's been amazing so far. And as a sorry, as a math book, I always go back to Infinite Powers by Stephen Strogitz. I don't. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. No, I haven't heard of that one. Infinite Powers is the title. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Cool. I'll check that one out. And final question. If you can invite three influential figures, dead or alive, to dinner, who would they be? Just three. Um, Okay. So I have to say Kevin Simpson because (laughs) I've never met him in person. (laughs) That is crazy. Um. And Danao Town is another one, I think. Like, we keep in touch, but I've never met her in person, and she's been revolutionary, I feel. Leila Saad, maybe? Ooh, shout out to Leila Saad. Me and white supremacy. Leila Saad, yes. Your podcast always find me at the time I need to hear her the most. It's weird. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. That's a book that everybody should have. Me and white supremacy, for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. She does not hold back in that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's a third culture kid. That's too, a powerful thing. Oh, didn't know that. <laughs> Learned something new today. Nice. But, ooh, Nayang, thank you so much for for the conversation. Um, It's been wonderful. And I know you're not 
huge on social media as far as like presence and all that, but how can people reach you if they just want to connect with you just to be in community with you? How can people reach you? Um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter, but like you said, I'm not very active. I honestly, if you want to really stay connected to me, um, come to the ALOC meetings, the community visionings, because that's where I feel like I feel safe enough to even express myself. Awesome. And also let people know how they can become members of ALOC. What's, what do they need to do so they can be a part um, of a great organization? ALOC.org slash memberships, just A-I-E-L-O-C.org. There's, there's a Google form there and you just have to sign up. All right. All right. Y'all heard it here on Radical Math Talk. If you're in the international space, tap in to the ALOC network. It will change your life, guaranteed. <laughs> so, Nayang, thank you so much. And we're going to connect soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for this space. I really appreciate it. All right. Have a good rest of the night. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Take care. So... We're about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk.com. Or numeral four educators.com. I'll say it one more time identity talk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.